0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly
1: reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. COVID-19 is an invisible enemy that's changed our daily lives and that our brains try to make sense of while we sleep. A dreaming mind
0: works so visually that when it's feeling terrified, it looks for an image
1: that would go with that emotion. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how has COVID-19 changed dreaming? And proponents of reopening economies in Georgia and other American cities cite Sweden's comparatively relaxed lockdown as a path to economic security and herd immunity. We ask, how would that work here? And best-selling author Sue Monk-Kidd's new novel portrays a bold first century woman and her
2: supportive husband, Jesus. It allows us to see the present in new lights, to think, how would things be different if Jesus had married?
1: Reimagining history 2,000 years later with On Second Thought, coming up right after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Compared to the lockdowns, bans on gatherings, and shuttered businesses in countries across the world, Sweden is an outlier. Swedish officials have advised citizens to work from home and avoid travel, but most schools and businesses have remained open. This relaxed approach aims to minimize impact on its economy and slow the spread of the virus through herd immunity. It's not often that American conservatives cite Sweden as a model for governance, but the progressive country's example has been picking up steam in prominent libertarian and conservative social and broadcast media.
3: If you look to other countries, consider Sweden, for example, they have never had an economic lockdown.
0: Well, the truth is we don't really know how the Swedish approach will shake out yet, but it's foolish to
3: simply dismiss it outright. Now, our media normally extols Sweden as the paragon of wise policy-making. They love Sweden, always have, soft socialism. And yet, on a dime, they turned. Suddenly, we were told that Sweden was, in fact, a corpse-strewn
1: hellhole. We wanted to understand the strategy behind what has become a political talking point. Tina Nguyen is with us via Zoom from Washington, D.C. She's White House reporter for Politico, and she recently wrote about how conservative Americans are looking to Sweden's response. Tina, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Atlanta, Dr. Felipe Lobello. He's associate professor of global health at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Dr. Lobello, thank you so much for taking the time.
3: Thanks, Virginia. Happy to be here.
1: So, Felipe, I'm going to start with you first. Herd immunity or herd protection ultimately slows the spread of infectious diseases. Can you tell us, give us a thumbnail of what it means and how it works?
3: Sure. Herd immunity really is, you know, a percentage of the population that has been infected with a virus or an uh, infectious agent or that has been vaccinated and because of a a proportion of the population that is immune, then the transmission of an infectious disease or an agent or a virus in this case is going to slow or even stop completely because, you know, the virus essentially runs out of hosts to infect. It has to do with how transmissible is the virus. And we know that for this new coronavirus, probably 60 or 70 percent is required for us to achieve her immunity.
1: Tina, there won't likely be a vaccine for COVID-19 for at least a year, which is why lockdowns across the world have continued. And we should clarify that the Swedish government has not been entirely hands-off in its approach, but how has it responded?
4: So Sweden has decided to take this counterintuitive approach, which is, okay, we will put some restrictions on the coronavirus getting to the most vulnerable population, which is our elderly population, our immunocompromised population. But life can continue with some degree of social distancing uh, enforced. But restaurants are open, salons are open, people can walk outside, albeit with social distancing. So if a restaurant doesn't have, say, six feet of space between each table, they can clamp down on that, but restaurants still can remain open.
1: So we have seen photos of Swedes congregating in restaurants. There's one even accompanying your article and a number of videos circulating extolling this relaxed approach. Why do you think this has been gaining traction largely among conservatives?
4: Conservatives have primarily been focused on making sure the economy stays healthy. Um, And for fairly good reason, we've just hit maybe about 30 million people filing for unemployment in the past several weeks alone, which is the highest since the Great Depression, I believe. And recently, Politico and a couple other news outlets have reported that the temporary furloughs that companies have put in place to um, cut back on costs have now become permanent. So you're looking at a massive economic disaster if this continues. However, conservatives believe that the approach to making sure that people don't you know, fall into economic despair is let's get people back to work. Let's start trying to reopen businesses. Let's make sure life goes back to normal as quickly as possible. So looking at Sweden as an exemplar of that, they're like, hey, look, here's a country that's trying to make it work. And sure, their economy is contracting, but it's going to be at a higher level of economic functioning than the rest of the world if a vaccine doesn't come for a year, two years, that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, earlier this week, Dr. Anders Tegnell, he's Sweden's Sweden state epidemiologist. He was on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah explaining this approach, keeping schools and business open without overloading their healthcare system is the goal. Let's hear just a clip from that.
2: I think we're trying to look at it holistically. And I'm not saying we were successful in all different ways. I mean, our death toll is really something
4: we worry a lot about.
1: So, Felipe, clearly that approach is not without its flaws. Is it working? How do the numbers in Sweden compare to other countries?
3: Well, it's a mixed bag. We know that they have a higher total number of deaths and a high mortality per capita compared to other Scandinavian countries. Now, having said that, Probably a higher proportion of the population has been infected in Sweden, which in the long run will help them achieve herd immunity faster. Now, we are still learning about this new virus, the biology of the virus, you know, the transmissibility in different groups of populations, also the mortality and you know, the different clinical manifestations of the virus. So clearly we don't know everything that we need to know, and this is a big risk that Sweden is taking. And they've acknowledged that because they for example, have uh, failed to contain outbreaks around elderly populations. More than 80% of their deaths come from, you know, nursing homes. So, you know, all these approaches have risk inherent with them because this is a new virus.
1: Well, Tina, what are some important differences between Sweden and the U.S. that we should consider as the U.S. considers its coronavirus strategy going forward?
4: First of all, Sweden has a way smaller population than the United States, it's about 10 million people, whereas New York, you've got 8 million people crammed into about 230 square miles, Um, that density has definitely sped up the transmission and the death toll of the coronavirus in the state of New York. So that's one consideration. The other one is that Swedes are far more compliant with the suggestion to socially distance than the United States is, primarily because they have a higher degree of trust in their government and their public officials. Uh, there are polls out there that say that Sweden has one of the highest rate of trust in their governments in the world, maybe about 77 percent in the U.S. I don't remember off the top of my head is considerably lower than that.
1: Well, clearly, distrust of some government officials and their estimates has been one of the motivations for demonstrations to open up the economy in the U.S. But that's a cultural difference. Felipe, how about the health risk factors for coronavirus? Obesity, diabetes, hypertension, smoking. How do Swedish and American populations compare there?
3: Sure. We know from uh, previous data that Sweden, compared to the United States, is a healthier country with much higher prevalence of obesity, diabetes, heart disease physical inactivity, uh, bad diet, compared to Sweden and other Scandinavian countries. And that may uh, explain why in the U.S. We're, we have to take stronger lockdown measures because we have a more vulnerable population.
1: The U.S. also has higher rates of poverty and income inequality than in Sweden. Felipe, how does that factor into this debate over herd immunity?
3: Very important because we know the social determinants of health are drivers, really, of the outcomes, not only in chronic diseases, but in this case, infectious diseases. You can start to see that vulnerable populations, of populations of color, African-Americans, Latinos, are uh, shouldering a much bigger burden of disease with coronavirus compared to white populations. And that is pro, you know, partially explained by disparities in income, in education, in access to health care, in uh, the ability to Self isolate or you know work from home versus being an essential worker. So all those factors, in addition to the biology of the virus, are uh, driving the outcomes that we see.
1: My guests are Dr. Felipe Lobello of Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health and Tina Wen. She's White House reporter for Politico. We're talking about how Sweden's relatively lax response to COVID nineteen compares with the U.S. and other countries. Tina, I know by no means does this neatly tied to partisan sentiments. But so far it has parsed along political lines here. Do you think that could blur as states reassess their own coronavirus responses?
4: Absolutely. Uh, this poll recently came out from Axios uh, describing how many Americans believe that the government's numbers on coronavirus are correct. Uh, surprisingly, it split into thirds, maybe about a third thought, yeah, this is accurate. Republicans overwhelmingly thought that they were being overreported and Democrats believed they were being underreported. So you're going to see conservatives really pick apart the differences that the states are taking to approach the coronavirus. That being said, it will be interesting to see how states that are I would guess, swing states react to the coronavirus. But you might also see Democrats take that approach as well, because, look, New York and New York City in particular is packed way denser than, say, South Dakota, which is also experiencing its own coronavirus outbreak in meatpacking plants. But if you isolate successfully in these states, that's one thing. It makes more sense to lock down New York City, which, like I said, is it's just packed with people. So, yeah, we'll see exactly how that plays out.
1: Well, there is something else embedded in this idea that the young and strong will likely survive, you know, survival of the fittest. Ken Turnage, he's a city official in Antioch in Northern California, he was removed from office after extolling what he saw as the value of herd immunity, that it would allow the sick, old, and injured to, quote, meet its natural course in nature. So in the crudest terms, those not young and healthy would likely die. Now, critics have said there is a correlation between the herd immunity model and eugenics. I'm wondering, Felipe, for you as somebody in the public health field, what do you think of that?
3: Yeah, It's a very valid criticism. I mean, the, the reason we have uh, public health and mitigation strategies is precisely to protect everyone. And, you know, we do know that the elderly are more vulnerable, but we also know that these virus can affect and does affect Younger people and people that maybe don't have pre-existing conditions. Even we're starting to see cases in uh, kids that develop vasculitis or you know inflammation of their blood vessels or their heart. So you know we really don't ex- know exactly how this virus kills necessarily. Uh, even with the relaxed approach that you know comparatively Sweden has taken, they're you know they're they're still taking mitigation strategies to slow the spread of the virus because if you let this virus rampant in the population estimates are that you know the mortality for example in the United States to peak to into two million people like i I, I don't I, I just see no political or ethical or economical argument where that amount of uh, suffering and death is allowable in any uh, perspective uh, so this idea that we can to write off a whole segment of the population uh, to keep the uh, economy going is just a false uh, alternative. We do have the public health in tools in order to mitigate uh, a disaster like this.
1: So let me clarify, you just said 2 million. Was that deaths if the U.S. had stayed open according to models? Or or how does that compare with the numbers that we have now with lockdowns?
3: Correct. The, the unmitigated disaster, which was a model that was uh, created by investigators in England, show that without doing nothing, the US could expect around 2 million deaths just in this uh, initial wave of uh, coronavirus in the next uh, 12 months. So that's what we are saying. An unmitigated disaster was obviously not an option.
1: Well, especially here now that the approaches in the U.S. are varying state by state. Here in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has effectively adopted the Swedish model, or at least in part, and a lot of people are resisting it. So what do you think we're going to see happen as the state opens back up?
3: Every uh, aspect of healthcare and on public health is local. So it's hard to make a prediction about how the state will fare. Uh, And if we look at the state... We've been relatively doing okay in terms of the percentage of ICU beds, for example, that are being used statewide. But when you drill down into particular communities like Albany or like uh, you know some areas of northeast Georgia, we do see an overrun in the, health, the capacity of healthcare systems because outbreaks are localized and they don't all happen at the same time. So we do expect a resurgence in the number of infected, in the number of hospitalized, How big of that peak is really going to depend on how much mobility the population decides to take. So it's hard to know how this is going to affect whether the healthcare system in Georgia is fully going to cope. I think it's going to cope in some areas, but unfortunately, in areas where there's more vulnerable populations, uh, we'll have likelihood to see outbreaks and more excess mortality, unfortunately, because we're not taking all the public health measures that we need to take.
1: Well, there are a lot of different opinions of what the best approach is. So how can politicians, officials, even regular citizens know which method works best, either the hammer of lockdown or the more open approach to perhaps get closer to herd immunity is best? Tina, I'll ask you first.
4: Honestly, no one's really going to know until a vaccine is developed. Um, When I was reporting out this uh, story about Sweden, I was talking to a couple of public policy experts who work for conservative-leaning think tanks and written for conservative magazines. And one person mentioned that Sweden is making a giant gamble. And if a vaccine pops up sooner, then they're going to look like heartless monsters who tried to keep the economy afloat at the expense of their elderly. If the vaccine takes about one or two years to develop, they're going to look like they saw the future and prepared accordingly for it. Hmm. Uh, So really, you're not going to see any sort of firm definitive, we should have done this versus we shouldn't have done this until it is clearly over.
1: Felipe, do you want to add anything to that or your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I I agree that obviously, even with the H1N1 pandemic uh, 10 years ago, we really didn't know the exact toll in terms of infected and mortality until years later. What I will say is that, you know, now we've had time to slowly prepare for subsequent waves. And we know that even if the vaccine comes fast, fast is not in a month or two. Fast is in six months or a year. The more investment in public health, what we call intelligence, identifying early the cases and contract tracing and isolations are going to be critical to avoiding big peaks in infection and mortality. And we'll see the countries that have invested more in public health are the ones that are going to fare better. That's the only way that we really have uh, in order to slow transmission of the virus.
1: Well, I want to thank you both for your time. Tina Wen, White House reporter for Politico, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. This was really a pleasure.
1: We have a link to read Tina's article, Conservative Americans See Coronavirus Hope in Progressive Sweden, at our website at gbbnews.org. And Dr. Felipe Lobello, thank you very much.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: He is Associate Professor of Global Health at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Now stay with us for some coronavirus has let our anxieties and minds run wild even when we sleep. We're going to hear about why and how COVID-19 is affecting our dreams. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more on Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Coronavirus has changed so many aspects of our waking lives. It's also shifted how we dream. Institutions around the world have been collecting examples of dreams since the outset of the pandemic. Some researchers found a 35% increase in dream recall since lockdown. Well, last week, we put out a call to hear how your dreams have changed. Caitlin Barrett and Villa Rica shared a particularly vivid one.
4: I got into a minor fender bender with someone on an interstate in the dream. The police showed up and the officer asked, what do I do for work? And so I tell him my work in healthcare. And in that moment, everyone ran away from
1: me. Deirdre Barrett has made a career out of understanding what our dreams say about us. She's a psychologist and dream researcher at Harvard University who's analyzed the dreams of World War II soldiers, 9-11 first responders, and Kuwaitis under Iraqi occupation. She's been collecting details of people's dreams during the pandemic and is with me on Zoom to talk about what she's learning. Deirdre, welcome and thanks so much for being with us.
0: Hi, nice to be here.
1: So you launched this survey for people to share information on their dreams. You've had more than 7,000 responses since. What have you observed so far? Well, I'm,
0: I'm seeing clusters of distinctive kinds of content. Uh, some of the types of dreams I'm getting are dreams where the person just dreams about getting the virus. They're having trouble breathing. They're spiking a fever. Or sometimes it's more dreamlike. One woman looked down at her stomach and saw blue stripes on it. And in the dream, she remembered that this is what health authorities say is the first sign of the virus. Then there are metaphors of which bugs are a huge cluster. People dream about swarms of flying bugs attacking them, uh, armies of cockroaches running at them, masses of wriggling worms. I think that one, which I've never seen in other crises, is because of the word bugs partly. Mm -hmm. You know, we use it as a slang term. I've got a bug means I've got a virus, essentially. But in a deeper sense, I think it's a really good metaphor for lots of little things that cumulatively could harm or kill you. But I also see just a little bit of every metaphor one sees in any crisis, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes. Sometimes those will be intermixed with things from the actual news about the virus, like de Blasio might be telling people they have to shelter in their apartments because of the swarms of bugs or because a tornado is coming, or Trump might be telling them that uh, there's no tsunami, it's fake news. So even the metaphors get a little blended in with mm-hmm. the, the real events.
1: You're talking about New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio there. So you, you're you talking about tornadoes, hurricanes. This is distress, and obviously, there's a lot of distress that is going on for people collectively right now. How does that affect the dreams that we have?
0: Well, for the typical person who's sheltering at home, watching the news, very worried, uh, but not on the front lines of dealing with it, they tend to just be having a lot of anxiety dreams. The dreams that I just mentioned about the virus itself were the most frequent at first, But as time wears on, I see more dreams that are about the outshoots of the pandemic, like the sheltered home orders and homeschooling kids. One woman who was really homeschooling her one child dreamed that the school had decided that all of her child's class had to shelter at her home throughout the pandemic, and she had to do their homeschooling. So <laughs> dreams
1: exaggerate mm-hmm. what, what is worrisome in our waking lives. Well, sounds a little bit of a nightmare, too. Um, and yeah. Let's also hear, this is, this is, of course, we ask people to call in and tell us about their dreams. So like you, th- this is self-selecting, basically. But here's a little bit of what Lynn Giger shared with us.
3: Early in
1: the lockdown, I would have these vivid dreams where I would look at
0: myself in the mirror and my face would be covered in these bright blue, shiny, almost jewels. And people would walk up to me and say, oh, what's that on your face? I'm like, oh, it's just my
1: coronavirus. (laughs) So you mentioned the blue stripes that manifested for somebody. This was from early in the lockdown, as she said. You mentioned that the content is slightly different as time wears on. So is it serving some kind of purpose in processing what is happening to us, what goes on in our unconscious? I think that our dreams are very much
0: like our waking thought in that lots of it is just repetitive and not necessarily getting us anywhere, but the the purpose is to try to think through our thoughts and concerns. And just like waking thought, some of it is wasted and circular and some of it is doing a really good job of processing and sorting things or of giving us a different perspective, making us think about something that we haven't so far. So, I mean, overall, cumulatively, dreams are productive, but, but just like with waking thought, not every second of every dream is productive. And it, it's interesting that the example I just gave and hers both have bright blue, because a lot of the visualizations of the virus have made it mm-hmm. a kind of distinctive bright blue and bright red together.
1: Mm -hmm. Here's another reflection that we got um, and something that you also heard in your survey, anxiety about coming into contact with other people. Here is a little dream description we got from Sean Keenan.
2: Ever since the reality of the pandemic really set in for me a few long weeks ago, my dreams have been devolving into the truly bizarre. Now, I'm no stranger to nightmares, but these are different. I find myself wandering through worlds in which once common and casual human contact seems more like an attack. I suppose I didn't realize how much I missed handshakes and hugs.
1: Deirdre, we mentioned researchers finding that people are remembering dreams much more vividly. That actually came out of Lyon in France. Can you tell us why that might be happening? Well, any crisis tends to stir up our dream lives a little more than usual,
0: just for psychological reasons. Um, I saw slightly more vivid dreams after 9-11. But I think we have a really unique thing combining during this pandemic, which is that most crises, if anything, people sleep a little bit less because they're worried and they're having to do things about it. And in this case, what you have to do is shelter at home, you get furloughed from your job, your school is canceled and sending you home. So not everyone, but the most typical person is probably getting to catch up on sleep and the last dreaming period of the night is the longest and the most vivid and so if you cut off just a little of your sleep time you're not just proportionally losing that amount of dream time you're losing more dream time and your very most vivid so likewise when you catch up on sleep you get this big rebound
1: in vivid dreams My guest is Deirdre Barrett. She's assistant professor of psychology at Harvard University, author of the Committee of Sleep, and a dream researcher. She's been cataloging COVID dreams from people around the world since March. Another listener, Elizabeth Gruber Jr., said that her subconscious has taken a different direction.
0: I am not dreaming at all right now, and I'm...
1: I was a fairly regular dreamer before. So she's not dreaming at all. What What about people who are dreaming or remembering less? Might What might that say about a different kind of response to this pandemic?
0: Well, even though most people are sleeping more, there certainly are some people who are sleeping less, either because they're worried enough that it's stopping them from sleeping, or some people have added job demands. So the average person's sleeping more, but, you know, We're not all average. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, right now, your dream survey is only published in English, but you have had people have reported from all over the world. Have you seen differences in the ways people are processing things in their dreams uh, as a result of the pandemic from other countries with different paths and different containment strategies?
0: Well, I certainly saw... That people were at different stages with the epidemic. I I got a fair number of dreams from Italy early on. And the healthcare workers there especially were just completely immersed in the trauma and already having all these nightmares. When American nurses and doctors were getting anxious as they knew they were preparing for something like that, but they weren't experiencing it and weren't having these post-traumatic dreams yet. One other difference I noticed is that although leaders appear in a lot of dreams more than they typically show up in our dreams, Um, in normal times, if famous people are in dreams, it's much likelier to be actors and rock stars, entertainment figures. But currently, there are more leaders at every level, mayors, governors, presidents and prime ministers. And one thing I've noticed is that although there's certainly some variation within each country, that in the United States and Asia, I would say on average, the leaders play a somewhat negative role. They're either interfering and doing something that makes the situation worse or you know some piece of information that you need to confide in an authority and they won't listen. That's most typical, although it's all over the place and it ranges by by particular leader. Whereas in Europe, they're mostly positive. They're mostly doing sort of good things to help. And if you need to convey information to them, they're mostly listening to you. So I do notice that difference in how people unconsciously seem
1: to feel like their leaders are doing with handling this. Well, you have noted also, you mentioned the dreams of frontline healthcare workers like Caitlin, who we heard from earlier. They look differently than the general population. And in the stuff that I've read that you've written about, you characterize these as more classic forms of PTSD nightmares. Now, you've written a book on the trauma of dreams. The Committee of Sleep is the name of the book. What role do they serve in either triggering, processing, in combination with PTSD, do you think? Well, a
0: lot of the healthcare worker dreams, especially now that the pandemic is really underway most places, are just classic PTSD nightmares. They're not as bizarre as other dreams. They tend to be rather literal. Um, But many of the general public dream that their children or their elderly parents come down with the virus. But for the general public, the dream just ends with that, oh my God, they have it, they might die of it. But for the healthcare providers, if they dream that their child or elderly parent gets it, then the very next thought is always, I've given it to them. They're about to die of this because I have infected them. So there's a lot of concern about being infectious themselves.
1: Well, yeah, after studying dreams collected from soldiers during World War II and first responders after 9/11, people in in wartime uh, traumatic situations. How do you compare those to what you're seeing now from frontline healthcare workers? Well,
0: these, these are much like other times of crises, and I, I think they're especially analogous to the ones I collected after 9-11, because the ones after 9-11 I collected um, mostly from Americans, and the typical person was very worried about What had happened, but not extremely directly involved and that's certainly true for the pandemic right now as people hunker down at home And watch the news. So in both cases, I got The typical dream was anxious, but not a full-on nightmare For for both of the larger groups and then for first responders at 9-11 and people who barely escaped the buildings They were having classic ptsd nightmares as are a lot of the frontline first responder healthcare people now. Um, There's one difference that I think is pretty unique to this crisis. When a menace is invisible, we're just as terrified, but we don't have one or two obvious visual images that everybody will use. So after 9-11, most of the dreams, even if they were bizarre and dreamlike, they had buildings coming down and planes crashing into things and hijackers with, with knives in their hands. And there were some metaphors. There were tornadoes and earthquakes, but more of them were about some visual image from the real event. Whereas, except for the healthcare providers who really do know what it looks like to watch someone die of this, Most of the general public is terrified of them, but don't have one simple image. So I think that's why I'm seeing more metaphor dreams and some of the metaphors cluster around exactly the issue that the thing's invisible, but also they just grab onto any scary image that the person has ever seen because our dreaming mind works so visually that when it's feeling terrified, it looks for an image that would go with that emotion.
1: Well, I do notice that so many people are talking on social media about sharing what they're dreaming uh, with friends. So is there power in sharing dreams or what do they get out of that, particularly now when we're more isolated? Yes,
0: I think it's just a more intense version of, I mean, sharing, you know, that we're all having the same waking worries and experiences makes people feel bonded to people on the other side of the planet. But, but dreams are deeper and more personal. So when, when you're having anxiety dreams and you tell them to someone who says, oh, I had something like that too, and tells you their version of it, we really connect at a more unconscious level.
1: Well, one thing that is universal is that bad dreams can have a chilling effect or a sobering effect on someone's day. Now that we are having more disturbing, anxiety-provoking dreams, is there anything that we can do to control our dreams given the limited amount that we can do to actually control this pandemic?
0: yes I mean in in the committee of sleep I go into a lot more detail about how you can direct them to be more creative or you know solve personal problems or inspire you in work but the most relevant one to the current anxiety dreams is that if you think of something you would like to dream about maybe there's a wonderful place you'd like to be, maybe some place you're planning to go after this is all over. So just pick something you would like to dream about. And then as you're falling asleep, picture that person or place or activity in your mind's eye and tell yourself repeatedly as you're falling asleep that I want to dream about this. I want to dream about this. And that both makes it likelier that you will have the content you're targeting and also less likely that you'll have more anxiety dreams. Deirdre
1: Barrett, what a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it. Deirdre Barrett, she's assistant professor of psychology at Harvard University and author of The Committee of Sleep. And thank you to all of those who called in to share your dream experiences with us. Coming up, a conversation with Sue Monk Kidd. She'll be talking about her latest novel, The Book of Longings, which imagines the story of Jesus' wife. That's when On Second Thought continues. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. I have thoroughly enjoyed hosting the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talks during lockdown. A couple weeks ago, I spoke with Sue Monk Kidd, who was raised in a conventionally Baptist family in Sylvester, Georgia. Her memoir, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, follows her turn away from fundamentalism into sacred feminine traditions. While best known for The Secret Life of Bees, Sue monk Kidd has written three best-selling novels. Her newest, The Book of Longings, imagines the life of a first-century woman named Anna, who becomes the wife of Jesus of Nazareth. Anna is the daughter of a close aide to Herod Antipas, governor of Galilee, and she's audacious and aspires to write the histories of the biblical matriarchs. The Book of Longings is Anna's story, but even suggesting that Jesus had a wife has led to condemnation, protests, and boycotts against other novelists, like Nico Kazantzakis for The Last Temptation of Christ or Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. I asked Sumon how she answers critics or devout Christians who cannot abide any speculation about the life of Christ. Warning here that you're going to hear a couple of brief digital distortions during this edited conversation.
2: I think what I would say is it's fiction, you know, and I would also say that I don't know whether Jesus was married or not, but that was never the point for me. The point was to imagine it. And I feel like I was writing an alternate history, a um, a reimagining, if you will, if we can create alternate histories or reimagined history it allows us to see the present in new lights to think well how would how would things be different if jesus had married how would the world be different would it matter well it would be very different indeed and i think that was worth the imagining right there because it can help us understand what's possible and how we might envision our present and our future differently.
1: What are some of those ways? I know in the author's note, you write about the real difference in how first century Christians and second century Christians even entertained the idea of marriage with Christ.
2: Yes, I mean, you know, it's not in the scripture, whether he was married or not. Someone pointed out to me that, well, if he had been married, it certainly would have been mentioned in the scripture. But I'm not at all convinced of that, because the invisibility and silencing of women at that time uh, and in the scriptures is a real thing. In the first century, women had a much more prominent role, leadership roles in the early church. But in the second century, that all changed. Women were moved to the peripheries. Women were devalued and silenced. Virginity became, in women, became the highest kind of virtue for women. Um, Celibacy became a path to holiness. So um, there was a breach between sensuality and spirituality. So these things are kind of, as they say now, baked in to the early development of Christianity. And I think it's worth imagining something different. Well, we do meet Anna, the character.
1: She's 14 years old, which is a critical age in in the life of a young woman then. Her father, who had indulged her in her study of languages and love and writing, decides it is time to marry her off, right? He's head scribe to Herod, as we said. So it's a political, it's an economic transaction, as many marriages were at that time she rebels against this. And she's almost a kind of proto-feminist in a way. Uh, You pointed out writing stories of women normally sidelined in the Torah. Does this reflect any of your experience as a dissident daughter, uh, discovering a more female-centric spirituality?
2: Um, I I think you're right about that. To somewhat, to my surprise, It turns out Anna and I have a lot of things in common. Um, I didn't quite realize how much until the book was turned in. And my husband said to me, he read it, the manuscript. And he said, you know, I see a lot of Anna in you. And I see a lot of you in Anna. Now, I've decided there's a lot of Anna in a lot of women, um, women who want to have a voice, who have a largeness inside of them, and I think we all do, um, who want to bring that forth. So they're like her a lot. So Anna, I think, goes on a spiritual journey. I did the same thing, a feminist spiritual journey. I wrote about it in The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. I continued that journey. Anna is into all these things, what was your research process
1: for this book? Because it must have been intense. Was it primarily based in theological scholarship?
2: Um, yes, the research was huge and daunting. Very and detailed. Very detailed. I I researched about 14 months before I even wrote up the first word. So it took learning everything possible about this world that I could learn. I felt that I had to portray it in all its richness, all its detail. And that meant if there was a tree that grew in Galilee, I had to know what it was. What did they eat? What did they wear? Um, But it wasn't necessarily theological. Most of it was about the historical Jesus. And this was from a Christian standpoint, basically.
1: I do get a sense of how, I think in the book, how revolutionary Jesus was at that time. He calls God Abba or Father. uh, And Anna's mind, her husband, transformed the relationship with God from the God of rescue to the God of presence. Uh, He places love and compassion and help to the most needy above holiness Did your understanding of Jesus, did it evolve or change when you were writing the Book of Longings?
2: Uh, Possibly, yes. I think the research was transforming for me in some ways about how I understood Jesus as a figure. I came to appreciate the human being he was, the extraordinary human being, because mostly I had related to the divine side of Jesus in my religious background. So this was a different feeling for me. I really wanted to have people appreciate that because then we can see, well, he's a human being. I'm a human being. Maybe I could be more like that. Maybe it is possible. Maybe it's not without, out of the bounds of reality to be compassionate and inclusive and forgiving. Um, So I would love to know a little bit more about your conception of Mary, the the
1: mother of Jesus, who is a woman who's, you know, given um, pretty broad outlines in in biblical terms.
2: Yes. um, It was such a joy for me to write her character. Writing this book, Mary turns out to be very human. She's got graying hair. She's often tired from her chores. She's... um, She raised a a very good son, probably didn't get a lot of credit. I I just loved her in this story. She was an ally to Anna. She was a wise moderating force in the story. There's this story I tell. (laughs) Um, I grew up in the small town of Sylvester, Georgia, and I was a member of the First Baptist Church. And at Christmas, we had a life-size nativity scene and there was this occasion when it caught on fire and i mean really caught on fire and our minister at the time bravely (laughs) rushed into this life-size nativity stable to save baby jesus and joseph and mary burned oh my goodness! okay so So this made an impression on me. (laughs) And I have been trying to save her ever since. (laughs) True story. Uh, Do you consider the
1: creative process for your last two books as historical fiction to be different from The Secret Life of Bees and the Mermaid Chair? Or perhaps do you consider them all to be historical fiction?
2: I think the process for The Invention of Wings And the Book of Longings was very different Mm -hmm. because of the research. You know, I could draw on my memories of being an adolescent in 1964 when The Secret Life of Bees was set. I just remembered things. So that was just less of an arduous task of researching. Same with The Mermaid Chair. But um, there were always things you had to research, you know, a little, little things. But, boy, it took on a whole other epic feel when I was writing The Invention of Wings because American slavery is a huge topic to take on. And I felt like I went way out on the literary limb writing about that in the first-person voice of an enslaved woman. Um, but I had no idea that the, the taking of my own breath would come with this book. I guess the only way it really differs for me is in the research.
1: Taking of your own breath. What do you mean by that?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, I've said many times that as women, we need to take our own breath away at least once in our life. Mm -hmm. That would be very different things for different uh, women. But um, I think it's an important thing to do. So what is your moment, you know? And I thought mine was writing Dance of the Dissident Daughter. That took my breath away that I wrote that book, honestly. It required me to scrape up all my bravery. But this one took my breath away in an even larger way. And I remember when I wrote the opening lines of this book, the day I did it, I wrote, I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus, bin Joseph of Nazareth. And it took my breath. I sat back in the chair, my desk chair, and I thought, I'm doing this. But my longing to do this was so strong my knowing my creative self knew this was my book to write that in some ways I felt put here to write it. And I have heard readers already say, I was nervous about reading this book, but I'm so glad I did. I think readers will find that to be true. And, um, maybe it will take their breath a little bit too like it took mine.
1: Best-selling author Sue Monk-Kidd there talking about her new novel, The Book of Longings, which imagines the life of the wife of Jesus. Our conversation was recorded for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. To watch a video of the full conversation or for links to our next talk with Mary Beth Keene, author of Ask Again Yes on May 12th, or Stephanie Danler's talk about her new memoir, Stray, on May 21st, visit atlantahistorycenter.com. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. You can subscribe to the OSD podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. However, whenever you listen, thank you so much for spending some time with On Second Thought from GPB.